What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 599, a best of episode with uh, Annika Lucas. This episode originally aired, I think, in 2015. Does that sound right? I don't know. It, 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 <laughs> who gives a shit? Who gives a shit when it aired, Paul? It aired a while ago, at least six years ago, uh, and it's a really great episode. Normally, when I release best of episodes, I release them um, from the first two years of the podcast, which are not available. All the other years of the podcast from 2013 forward are available uh, for people to listen to at any time, and this is one of those episodes, but you know, that the back catalog kind of gets lost in the uh, in the shuffle, and this is uh, an episode that I think is really special, coupled with the fact that Annika uh, has just published a book about uh, her experiences and the things that we talk about, and so I wanted to... Uh, Bring some attention to that as well as re-air what I think is one of the most compelling episodes that we've uh, we've ever done on the podcast. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Uh, you know, it's amazing how we will disregard our brain's health because there's this myth that uh, you know we're babying ourselves if we do things to to treat it well. But you know, when our car needs oil, we take it to the shop. Uh, you know, when our muscles need a workout, we go to the gym. Uh, but for some reason, we ignore our brain's health a lot of the time. And uh, one of the ways that I do it is using therapy. I also do support groups. But uh, therapy through BetterHelp, I've uh, I've had a really good experience there. I've been doing it a couple of years. And uh, it's I always feel better after I have a, a therapy session. Uh, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with the therapist in under 48 hours. And you guys, the listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com mental. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash mental and make sure you include the slash metal so they know you came from the podcast this episode is sponsored by when breath becomes air when breath becomes air by paul kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis it's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive 
a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. We will be back in August with new episodes, but until then, enjoy some of these uh, tasty best of episodes. And uh, now the episode with uh, Annika Lucas from uh, a while back. Welcome to episode 245 with my guest, Annika Lucas. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. All kinds of stuff you can do there. You can read blogs, guest blogs. Um, just posted a great one by my friend and former guest, uh, Cassie Snyder about uh, body image. She's a really funny writer and just such a great way of uh, capturing uh, the absurdity um, of of life. Uh, so, so check that out. Um, you can take surveys there. You can see how other people took filled out surveys. As you know, I love to read those on the podcast and they're a big part of it. Um, you can support the show through the website. There's all kinds of stuff you can do there. The form, you can browse the form or you can join it and post and connect to other people. I know a bunch of people um, uh, connected on there before the Brooklyn uh, show that I just came back from and they met before the uh, the show and uh, and hung out together, which I can't even tell you how much that warms my heart, uh, mostly because I know they were talking about me. Uh, what do I have to share with you? This vitamin D that I have been on now for a month is making all the difference in the world. You know, I've shared many times about this crazy anxiety I would get when I would be playing hockey. It is going away. I, I played in like a big, uh, well, big in quotes, uh, playoff game uh, the night I came back from, from Brooklyn. And normally, my, you know, my legs would have been a little shaky. I'd have been uh, fatigued after a period. And uh, I had strength and a certain calm throughout the entire thing so I, I think vitamin D might be uh, the the solution I was looking for I was thinking that it was mostly mental but uh, I'm beginning to think it was it was uh, biological chemical I don't know what the, I can fax you the details and if you're old school I can mimeograph them and uh, send them to you uh, via the Pony Express Let's get to the let's get to the uh, show. But thank you everyone that came out in Brooklyn. I had such a great trip. I had so many amazing moments being there. I recorded a ton of people, um, lots of different backgrounds, lots of different issues, and uh, just really, really loved it. 
This is a struggle on a sentence survey. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself Tony Soprano, and in the parentheses, because it's on TV while I type this. His issue, was, uh, his issue is depression, and he writes, I feel much better as soon as you all leave me alone. Oh my God, do I relate to that? Snapshot from his life, crying in my car in a parking lot after hanging up on a rude customer. An old lady taps on my window and says, Baby, you need to get away from whatever it is that's making you feel that way. I know, but this pays the bills. Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Help Me Put Brakes on the Roller Coaster. Uh, she is uh, she has bipolar too, which she describes as a kiddie roller coaster you must ride forever. Small ups and downs, repeating over and over. Uh, about her anorexia, I just want to see my hip bones and ribs again, then I'll be okay. Uh, compulsive behaviors, hair braiding. I have to finish braiding the smaller pieces to make into a bigger piece. Tie it off with a knot, put it back in a ponytail, relax. Must untie the knot, untangle the hair. I have a small patch of thin hair to the left of my face that doesn't grow in anymore. About her anger issues. Hating myself with such passion that I must punch myself, pinch myself, something to relieve the hot tightness in my chest. Snapshot from her life. Boss gave me the day off from work. I went to the store, bought far more home decor stuff than I needed, came home, and set to work. I cleaned the entire apartment, rearranged the pantry, put things in labeled boxes on shelves, moved a mattress and box spring to the garage in the middle of a Florida summer. I felt like I could do anything. By the time my boyfriend got home at 5 o'clock, I was beginning to feel myself come down. My body was tired, but my brain still wasn't. I knew the next day was going to be a crash. Sure enough, I haven't gotten out of bed for two days. Oh man, that sounds that sounds really, really uh, intense. Uh, this is filled out by a guy. Oh no, I'm sorry. This is uh, filled out by a gender fluid um, uh, person who refers to themselves as Bug, and about their ADD, they write, "I am like a sim, and some asshole keeps changing my assigned task before I'm done with it." That is so fantastic. Uh, about their uh, anxiety, uh, the sound of hard steps on the stairs when you were in trouble as a kid. Oh, that is so visceral. It is so descriptive. About their OCD, touching this elevator button with my ring finger knuckle so I don't infect my partner with gonorrhea and blurting out the lyrics to my Sharona so mom doesn't die in a car crash is a tough job, but someone's got to do it. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing. I'm here with Annika Lucas, uh, who is a yoga instructor. Um, 
you go into prisons and jails in, in New York and teach inmates how to do yoga. Yep. And you, you started a, uh, a group of people. Yeah, you founded this team of people that go into the prisons and the and the jails and teach yoga. That's so beautiful. What's the name of uh, the group? Well, thank you. Um, it's called Liberation Prison Yoga, and I created it really by necessity because I realized there's no organized effort to bring yoga teachers into the prisons, and it's really what I set out to do. And I really went to teach originally because. I was going to create this organization. It wasn't Liberation at first. It was Prison Yoga Project, um, the New York branch of that. And I was volunteering um, full-time after a very short time because once I started or doing it, uh, I realized, well, I have to teach if, I, if I'm going to do it. I have to bring other people in. I have to go through the, through the process. And... Um, so I started going in, and the first time I went in, I realized that that is where I really need to teach. What were the myths you had about uh, prisoners? Um, I believed, and I'm going to have to backtrack a little bit, because I believed that I was going to meet the people that I grew up with. And um, it so happens that I grew up with uh, a group of psychopaths. Uh, not just one. My mother is definitely psychopathic, but... Um, I was, you know, she, since she had absolutely no conscience and no feeling, no access to any of her feelings, um, she, uh, sold me and she sold me to a group of powerful politicians and aristocrats in my home country, Belgium. And so I was used for, um, from the age of six to 11 and um, so these were murderers. They were completely without a conscience. They were also powerful in the world. And um, this is how they held on to their power. This was their power fix. Um, I think this was the as far as they needed to go to get that high of feeling power. And um, I believed when I went into the prisons that I was going to find those people Wow. No, those people never get brought to justice. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wow, I'm so sorry that uh, that you had to experience that. I knew I knew that you had um, gone through some trauma, but I didn't know the the extent uh, of that. Of the violence, yeah, yeah. So. It's it's so amazing. Um, how calm the person is that's sitting in front of me. <laughs> how, um, you know, uh, we talked a little bit uh, in the car on the on the way here, and um, you're such an incredibly empathic person, and um, it's it's just so weird sometimes to reconcile such chaos in a childhood with such stillness in an adult. You're very still. Well, I actually accessed a stillness in my childhood when things were really bad. Um, I did feel a loving presence often. Um, I was tortured in various ways. Um, so within those moments, there usually was some greater awareness that would dawn on me that helped me through the ordeal. Wow. 
Like, like, can you give a... a well, what an, I'm thinking instance. of is rather graphic. I hope that that's okay. Trigger, trigger warning. Trigger um, warning. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I was, I wasn't looking for you necessarily to describe something graphically. More so, but it's not, it's not sexually graphic. But okay. it is graphic. Okay. Yes. But I was, I was looking for the, the, um, thing that would come into your, right, into your mind. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, but if you want to share the other part, that's fine too. Well, that's how it came about. So okay. I think it's the contact, the context uh, in this case would matter. Um, it's not something that I've actually spoken about, but it was, um, and it's so crazy, but I was uh, taken down in a coal cellar, in a, in a cellar of a large house, with uh, two adult men, one of whom was a politician, a famous politician, and um, they had a cardboard box with them, and uh, the politician wasn't carrying the box, but um, I was taken to a, a cellar that had coals inside and it had th basically three walls. So I was put in and then the box was opened and thrown at me and um, I was about 10 years old at the time, uh, maybe a little younger, and there were um, bugs inside. And they were, uh, they had claws, and so the bugs pinched me um, everywhere, and I screamed. And that was actually, I mean, this may sound very crazy, but these people were absolutely crazy. So the politician, I had spent some time alone with him, and he had wanted me to scream. He didn't say that, but I knew that's what he wanted, and I hadn't. I'd held out. And so this is how he got me to scream. And immediately after I screamed, there was this sense of a presence. And there is the physiological freeze mode that a person goes into in this kind of trauma so that you actually don't feel the pain as you normally would. Um, you, you are able to, the, the, the wounds won't bleed and so forth. Yeah. So there's all this physiological stuff going on, but at the same time, there was this sense immediately that that was seemed to be given from the outside, um, that these are just creatures, natural creatures that have been taken out of their habitat. And so I relaxed, I collapsed, relaxed, and so it seemed immediately as though they weren't so aggressive anymore. And the two men were bored by that time because I wasn't, you know, in distress, mm -hmm. obviously in distress. So they actually just left. And so I um, just brushed the last, um, they look like scarab beetles with mm -hmm. the pinchers. So I had these little marks all over me, which were uh, uh, little arrow marks, arrowheads, mm -hmm. it looked like. Um, and so I just got them out of my hair and walked back upstairs, which was then going to be to wait for my mother. But so there was, that's one instance of how this 
awareness would come to me and it then changed everything because it was so powerful that it wasn't even interesting for the men anymore, for the sadists who really wanted to me to be in distress. There's so many questions that that I have. Um, first of all, ha- have those politicians ever been brought to justice? No. Are any of them alive? Not the ones that I was exposed to. Have you ever said their names publicly? No. And is there a reason? I don't want to get killed. (laughs) Yeah. It's so sad. There was a scandal in 1996, the Dutroux scandal, or it was the Belgian pedophile scandal. It was named, it was written about in the New York Times. It got a little attention in the States, got a lot more attention in Europe. That was a trial of one man called Dutroux who said he had friends in high places who had been kidnapping children, who was basically a pimp for this network, who was delivering children. And then instead of infiltrating into families, incestuous families, usually often poor families, and obtaining the children, he started kidnapping children. And then he had to build dungeons for those children to keep them and so the parents were concerned and eventually the bodies of the children were found and Nihul is the only one who ended up um, I'm saying Nihul um, Dutu was really the only one who went to prison for life and a few of his companions and then Nihul was the fourth defendant who was involved um but really got off on the major charge, which was the kidnapping. And had any of those people personally abused you? Well, I um, had been confronted, definitely, with Jean-Michel Nihoul, who was one of the the people Mm -hmm. there, yeah. What do you mean when you say you had been confronted? Um, He was a middleman. I see. Um, But my mother was my pimp, so... I didn't really go through the middleman. Help me wrap my head around how how the, your mother could do that. Well, uh, psychopaths do not experience any feelings. I mean, they are a little bit soulless because they're not their limbic system in the brain just doesn't work. So they have fight or flight. You know, they have survival instincts, and then it goes straight to the um, the cortex. So they have, they can be very smart, very intelligent, but their whole feeling system is just not operative. So that's why uh, world leaders can do well um, because they have not, they don't have the the obstacles that we do of conscience of conscience in yeah. in getting ahead uh, yeah. and just as uh, CEOs of are very well you know it's a great profile for a, for a CEO to how to get ahead in business yeah and <laughs> psychopaths know how to mimic emotion know so. how to mimic emotion uh, see my mother I always wondered in my adult life when I was healing I was always wondering why does my mother doesn't answer to the profile of an alcoholic and the reason i finally realized is because she doesn't have any feelings to numb oh wow 
Wow, I never thought about that. I never thought about that. There's a great book called The Psychopath Next Door. I love that book. Oh, or it uses The Sociopath Next Door. One of those, yeah. 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 But yeah, yeah, she profiles like three people great in positions book. of authority who are uh, psychopaths. Great and, book. Yeah. And it you actually wind up coming away with some compassion for the psychopath because you realize they don't get to experience human connection. And no. so life is just a big chess game to them and people are pawns and they need bigger and bigger risks to feel and what a terrible prison to be in yes and depending on their intelligence level also my mother is not particularly intelligent and i really was her only victim she had power over me i would say perhaps my brother was somewhat of a victim but they're still in touch as far as i know i'm not in, in contact with either of them but the fact that I was female and I was her only child for a while, um, I became the repository for all the things that she would not have been able to handle about herself. So all the fears that she was not in touch with, the fear that she's ugly, the fear that she's bad, evil, you know, all mm -hmm. those fears, that, that's what was projected into me. So I grew up not really being able to have anything of me around her. It was a creation from her mind that was an, both evil, but also bland and ugly. And there were this whole list of things, of physical things that were wrong. Uh, she's very focused on the physical appearance of women, uh, especially. She's always gossiping about women. And... Um, so, yes, I, I definitely have come to a place where I don't envy psychopaths, whether it's my mother or whether it's people who seem to do really well and who actually do really well in the world, have all the power in the world, all the money in the world, the one percenters. I have no envy whatsoever. Haven't gotten in touch with my own feelings over the years, because it took a long time. <laughs> I have a lot of healing behind me. And my whole life is in this context of healing from that trauma. I can't, I can't do anything else. So and going into prisons is part of this healing. This is just the most beautiful part where I'm now sharing. I feel extremely useful because I can connect to the past experiences of most of the people that I work with. Uh, we relate I've found my past back in little bits and pieces, uh, different people. And so I really relate. I know what it's like to be treated as the lowest of the low. I know what it's like to be treated as evil all the time, even though you may not have done anything or you may have done something once. And so I really connect. And it is such a story of love, going in and sharing and then finding, you know, finding that so much love comes back to me, so much gratitude, and it's just the most beautiful thing. So I'm very happy. Um, well, I'm happy when I do that. I'm, I don't stay happy if I don't. <laughs> I need a lot of uh, uh, things to keep my mind from sinking, you know. Well, before we get to the healing of going in the prisons, uh, I guess I'd like to know the arc of um, how that abuse 
affected you and how you navigated the world and what your coping mechanisms be, became. Um, right. How did it? How did it end? Did you just get old enough that they didn't want you anymore? No, a lot of the girls who became older um, may have gotten pregnant uh, and killed. So there was always that hanging over our heads. I was rescued in an extremely dramatic way when I was 11. I was at my prime age, if you want, but I had been singled out. Prime age to the pedophile? Oh, yeah, to the men in the network, absolutely. That age, the new, you know, pre-pubescent to pubescent um, is perfect. It's like just at that age where it's a bit of a woman, mm -hmm. you know, it's like the whole society is kind of like obsessed with that kind of body type and girl and so forth for a woman. But, um, and did you know that at the time? Oh yeah, I got a lot and you know, I had nothing at home. And so when I was taken to the network, I was found beautiful, an object of course, but it's better than, you know, ugly. Mm -hmm. And, um, certain things in me were reflected back. So, I actually, as much as I was scared to go because death was always a possibility, I was also happier there. Wow. Wow. Yeah, living with my mother was really nightmarish. The constant mental turmoil of living with someone who just constantly projects um, where you can, I, I could never be me. At all, at all, like nothing. And my intelligence wasn't reflected, my nothing. There is nothing seen about me. So in the network, um, sometimes my intelligence was seen, but mostly my beauty was seen and then reflected back. And I got, I thrived on that. And I, as, an, as a young adult, I, so I was rescued at age 11. Um, this person who had taken a liking to me for a year um, and then became my worst abuser within that year and finally he was done with me and I was going to be killed and I was tortured and he had a change of heart and negotiated for my release with one of the politicians who was like the unofficial leader of the network and I was let go, not right away. I had to go through the worst experience um, there first, meaning committing violence before I was let go. Violence committed against you? No, I had to commit violence. Why? Because it's an extremely clever tactic. Oh, to keep you from talking. Uh, absolutely, and very effective. I am 52. I started speaking about this two years ago. Oh, my God. Out of fear that really I was an abuser. Wow. And that if I was going to start speaking, it was going to be clear that I am the bad guy. And, and I think this is something in abuse. While an abuser abuses, they feel release and relief and they feel a little bit of innocence, and they place this 
sense of evil and badness with the victim as a justification to do what they're doing. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to do it. So this is part of abuse, is that you get to feel evil. And and I think we put that shame on ourselves just immediately. It becomes shame. Yes, Yes. especially if there was any moments of pleasure uh, around. And why wouldn't there be? You know, the body goes into a freeze state, which especially in rape, that's really the only thing the body can do is to just relax all the muscles, go into freeze state. And part of that is that you will experience pleasure. So so you think you were the one that wanted it to happen. I'm not saying you in particular. No, but, but absolutely the to, victim. Yeah, to and, survive. And, and it's very confusing. And I think that there's a something going around there where uh, sex victims, uh, sex abuse victims sometimes feel that their body betrayed them. I would say I felt no. I that my whole life. But that's not true. Your body just did what it did to survive. But I didn't realize that until three years ago. It was such a relief to know that I was just a little boy that didn't deserve that. And because pedophiles don't see the child in the child, they don't see a child. They see parts of themselves that they've lost. They see maybe innocence, and then they're drawn compulsively to that part. They want to go back and grab it. They want to grab it, and they feel that innocence during the abuse, as strange as that may sound. While they abuse, they put the feelings, the dark feelings of anger and uh, everything that really belongs with the perpetrator, with their perpetrator, in that moment. Those feelings are projected onto the victim, who then becomes you know, the perpetrator for the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the perpetrator in that moment is relieved from all these feelings that they've been living with their whole life of of shame and pain and uh, feeling that it's their fault and anger, all this anger that they can't... Exp- in this way, it's just... That's the blueprint, and that's how it repeats... I am recording Annika at uh, about 11 in the morning here at the recording space. And normally I record after hours, so it's more quiet. But we couldn't uh, accommodate uh, her schedule because she's just in town briefly. And uh, so we have to record while the other offices are here. So uh, part of, half, of my br- half of my brain is, is listening to you, and the other half is screaming at the other tenants, going, shut the fuck up. She's talking about something heavy. Please, for the love of God, sh- shut the fuck up. But then I teach in prisons. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Very I, nice and quiet here. <laughs> I, need to, I need to accept uh, that I don't have control over how loud other people are and say that what is going to be is going to be with our interview, and it's not going to be ruined by these other people. Um, so talk about... Um, you get you get extricated from this thing, and had your mother ever, um, other than selling you and do, and doing the verbal abuse, had she ever sexually abused you, or was she sexually abused you as well? Yes. You you just really got the the whole buffet platter, didn't you? I did. 
When did when did that start with her? Well, she abused me as an infant, and I have remembered these things because they were so physically invasive that through physical memories, really, and pain, I got back to those memories, and then which was molestation, I guess, and then she um, molested me again after my release. So I was released with a set of very specific instructions as how to live my life. But since I was 11, I couldn't be put out on the street. So I had to live with my mother for another few years, and she would then not be able to bring me back to the network. And because she wasn't able to do that, she was very angry. Understandably, she had, didn't have her, you know, her meal ticket whatever she yeah yeah but i think it wasn't so much for the money of course so she took it but i think it was more for she had something that's how she when her powerlessness would be stirred up in mm-hmm. our you know inevitable clashes then she when she was triggered she felt like a, a scared child and she felt like i was going to kill her and then she had that power and she could say I'm going to take you back there that's what she would say and um, she was really she tried everything to break me after and I was much I was a much better girl in quotes before this person who had taken a liking to me had made me aware that she wasn't so great and then, of course, he greatly betrayed me as well. But I had been shifted. I wasn't completely, my mother wasn't completely good in my eyes anymore, as she had been up to then, believe it or not. She was completely good. Um, so, how, how had your mother explained the reason for giving you to these men? What was her justification? Oh, she didn't know. <laughs> She has, you know, some very good, you know, denial, buffers and buffers of denial. She didn't know what she was doing. She didn't, she didn't, she thought she was taking me to sleepovers. I did confront her. Um, You know, whatever she can sort of come up with, but she's not that smart, so it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. Like, she thought she was taking me to sleepovers, but then, oh, people who take, their kids, they're involved too. No, I never would do something like that. That's, you know, so confused. But not, actually, she didn't categorically deny it either. Mm-hmm. Um, but, so she tried, she tried to get the power back and then that was the last thing she did. And that worked. She molested me and the shame that I experienced at her shamelessness and Like it felt, I felt like I could never live after that. And so I sort of got back into her world, taking the verbal, you know, mocking and um, the, the projections, bland, ugly. Um, after, after she evil. molested you? Did that help shatter your image that your mom was 
always right? Well, I, it had already been shattered at that time. By the person that had told you your, your mom yeah. isn't. Yeah, yeah. Because I know it can take a long time for that ideal that we have to create to survive. of our parent to survive. Because if we know our parent's a monster... How are you going to live? It's too, Yeah, we, <laughs> you're not going to be able to get out of bed. Right. Um, those Legos don't play by themselves. <laughs> You've got to get out of bed <laughs> and work those Legos. Um, so... Once you began to know who your mom really was, um, was was that a good thing? Because you still had to live with her for some time? No, I forgot again who she was. When I was in the network and when I was being, when my eyes were being opened to who she was, that's how things got really, really bad. Because my mother um, wouldn't take it. So she just stepped up the pace, and she did everything she could, including after uh, she, including taking me back to a group of sadists after I was supposedly not to be taken anymore. I mean, she—that was her drive, her biggest drive. She appears to anyone as a kind of weak woman, maybe sexually inappropriate, but. Um, the willpower that she put to work in my abuse and seeing that I would be suffering was tremendous. Um, so my eyes had been opened, had been opened. Then things, you know, just really got to got really, really bad. Just anything, and since she's psychopathic, there were no limits. So there really were no limits. Like one one time, she she didn't pick me back up. So she would drive me to a place, but she didn't pick me back up. And she said that she was going to do that because I had said that she was no good, which was influenced by what I was learning. Mm -hmm. So she left me, and I was there for five days, and I nearly starved to death. And then she came and got me on a Thursday, a day before she was going to take me back again. So... She had no limits, but she was practical. To it's was she, it's like she wanted to kill me, but she also wanted me to be alive so she could continue to kill me, or to because then she'd me. have the most power over you. The more afraid and dependent on you that you would become, the the better dog you would be. Yes. So after she molested me, I she became all good again, and I survived again. But then I left home three years later and never came back. I did speak to her, and I continued in my healing process. So she was my mom. She was still a good person. And so little by little, as, you know, more and more, as I was capable of really holding more and more of this, you know, tremendous um, information that was not available in my younger years. You know, it took a long time before I was safe enough to receive the first bit of information. And so, over the years, you know, it became clear and I processed a lot of the grief and the feelings. And my relationship with my mother is still the most complex um in, in the healing, because I'm... You still have contact with her? No. Okay. I don't, but I still have 
feelings and projections. I'm the, I'm the same way. I, I think about my mom all the time, and I and I'm not conflating what happened to you to what happened to me. But it I'm, takes it takes. They're both someone... be, they're both betrayals, but I, I think about almost a day doesn't go by that I don't think about my mom and a little voice in my head will say you're you're being a bad son you know you should really just suck it up and call her she doesn't have many years left and then the healed part of my brain says shut the fuck up she's toxic you tried for 20 years she's toxic so she's a danger to you yeah but that doesn't mean that there can be no forgiveness. I mean, I don't hate her. I'm not even right. angry at her. I see her as sick, and I have compassion right. for her. But I, I had self protection, right? Yeah, I, yeah. you know, I like to say have compassion for others, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. Absolutely. And, and that had to finally kick in at you know 48 years uh, of age, and it was the healthiest thing I ever did for myself. But the reason I bring all this up is because that voice is still, I still ruminate about it. Less and less, it's it's tapering off. But I want to know with, with you where you are right. with with that, with, right. with your relationship with your mom or your feelings about, right. about your mom and what you think about. Well, it's expanded into this fight for liberation for women because I have been through everything that women go through for being women, for being girls, that makes them unliberated, that makes them betray each other and shame each other, shame each other, give power to men, hold up men on a pedestal, flatter men, and so uphold the patriarchy as it is today. So I have all the ingredients. My mother is like the extreme example of an unliberated woman. She was did not have an easy life at all. Uh, she made my life a lot harder than hers, I'm sure, but she was born before the World War. She was clearly molested, even though she has no memory of it. She has all the symptoms of someone who's like extreme sexual abuse. She was She starved in the war years in Belgium. In the town where she lived, there was starvation. She doesn't remember that either. She lost her mother when she was five years old in 1945. So she um, did not have an easy life. And she didn't also have the resources that I wouldn't have had if I stayed in Belgium. I got them in the United States. So there was no really openness towards therapy when I was still living there. When did you move? Uh, I left Belgium in the early 80s. Okay. I went to uh, France first, and I'd been told that I should go live in Paris, London, New York. Oh, New York. You should live in New York. And I think that this person was just thinking out loud, but I went and lived in all three places. So I ended up in New York in 1985. Um, and she really hasn't um she always gossips about women and she flatters men that's really i mean she's like a little girl who is scared of men but um is not so scared of women you know women reflect is this the reflection of the self-hatred so of of course i had a lot of that too because 
I was nurtured by being found beautiful in this sensualized way. So I got a lot of that, and I've trusted men more than women for the longest time. And um, I don't know. I'm sure I was pretty weird, you know. Uh, I did some really strange things. But because of after, the... Inst- after you got out? Uh, yeah, yeah, as an adult, as a young adult. Um, Any, I, anything I, you, you're comfortable sharing? Well, there wasn't really anything um, big because of the instructions. They were very clear. Never become a prostitute. Never take money to sleep with a man. Uh, never do anything to, to sleep with a man. I mean, they were very clear. Who gave you these instructions? The that- person who rescued me. Okay. That abuser who rescued me. I see. Because so. he knew that the traps that the girls fell into I once guess they so. became adults. I guess so. Yeah, he was I, I guess sure. I'm just curious. Was that... Was he in a moment of caring for your well-being, or was he protecting his own interest? No. He was... That was a one. probably the one altruistic moment in his life. Okay. And... Because it With threw, the me result, off guard, uh, threw me off guard a little bit. I was like, what's his angle there? No, no, no. He was definitely, he, was a, he killed many people. Um, but he had that one moment that he changed his mind. And the result of that, and so this is a psychopath by all you know descriptions of psychopaths, extremely charming and so forth. And he was rather young. He was 20 at the time, or 21. And what resulted, though, from that, him doing this one good deed and then opening himself you know he had to then negotiate so he was then considered weak inside the network um he did something for you know he had to do something for it and he he did lost his life um he how, how did he lose his life they they killed him well eventually he he the Part of the deal was that he was going to be like the left-hand man, I guess, of that politician. And in that, doing that, he ended up losing his life, losing, losing protection when he was caught and then losing his life. Um, but that is like that in that environment. You know, it's really true. Um, but in the moment when he released me, he shared his own childhood story that gave me the opportunity to understand what had made him the person that he was. And he basically told me about what happened to him as a 12-year-old boy that was exactly all the things that he had done to me in this year that helped me to really understand how this repetition comes about. And he cried and asked for forgiveness wow and then sent me off and i believe sent off the innocent part of himself with me and then turned to crime i mean then really delved into a life of crime out of the feeling that he wasn't worthy of anything else because he could never feel that he was good. He continued to protect his father who had abused him, his parents who abused, both abused him, and who had maim- who'd maimed him, who had maimed him as he... Emotionally or physically? Physically, physically. And he walked with a slight limp. He did the same thing to me. He stabbed me. 
Um, and I should be walking with a limp, but I've worked hard not to. It's, you know, as you share that moment with him, I think that might be the ultimate example of how people are both dark and light. Absolutely. You know, this is a psychopath. It tells me that there's hope for psychopaths if there's enough love, because that was what it was all about. He made himself vulnerable, which takes a lot of courage, but he did. And there was this long pause when he asked, when he said he was sorry, and he asked me to forgive him. There was a very long pause. And I had this power. I had been suddenly given this power. And I had been, of course, very abused. So it wasn't clear if I was going to embrace it, embrace him being weak. Weak, being vulnerable. Vulnerable. For, yeah. for in that... Weak no. in the network, but vulnerable in, in that. In yes, society. exactly. Uh, so, I I just said, "I love you." Wow. And what did he? Did he cry? She's nodding her head. Yes. What do you? What What emotions coming up for you right now? I feel very soft. You know, that was this one moment in this person's life. Um, I had a dream and then found out he had been killed that night, so there was a connection. Um, even though I was a child and he was a pedophile, and, you know, everything else. From knowing his story, I also found out that uh, later on, um, he was involved in very dark things, killed a lot of people, and one person who had been shot in the leg, or his leg might have been shot off, or killed that whole, the whole family of that man, a boy at the time, was a young boy, who looked at him and his mask had fallen off. And his literal mask had fallen off? His literal mask Oh, they wore off. masks, huh? Yes. And um, this was a, another big mystery, mysterious thing in Belgium that happened in the 80s. Um, so this surviving boy now a man wrote a book and said that this this criminal is that's the person who shot me and killed my family and that not necessarily believe but i know that it's true because he shot him in the leg and he had been stabbed in the leg by his father and he stabbed me in the leg um so that was his thing this was there was that trauma of the betrayal the father stabbed him after finding him in bed with his mother. But the father was already abusing him also, so the father felt that the son was, his. was betraying him yeah. rather than the wife, and then ran after the son and um, committed this violence to his son and stabbed him in the knee and crippled him. And so... He replayed that trauma his whole life long because he continued to love his father and he continued to feel that he was a traitor 
And so he continued to feel that he could never be good. So there are certain feelings, you know, when you say psychopaths mimic people's feelings. No, there are feelings. You know, I think on some level the trauma is always a very important factor. I think psychopaths, like my mother, I don't think my mother received any love when she was very young in the first years of her life when this uh, limbic system really develops and mm-hmm. there's a blueprint for an emotional life. I don't think if a child is never seen as innocent and cute and a baby, you know, a baby, mm-hmm. so baby's never viewed that way. And this can be one baby can not receive that from their parents, but another one can, you know. So I think that mixed with abuse usually creates just these horrible criminals. But I don't think, I mean, I know people like to say that it's this physical thing, and it certainly has both. I certainly have the blood of a psychopath, so I, you know, have all the ingredients to be a psychopath (laughs) and uh, certainly the abuse, but um, it's something that can be overcome just like anything else. Have you ever engaged in any behavior that shocked you where you were like, oh my God, uh, I'm, I'm heading down the wrong the wrong path no I was given a spiritual break I was given an experience right at the last night in the network and when I had been tortured and when I had committed violence and you know I would have not survived mm-hmm. I didn't in fact so I had an experience that gave me a taste of what we can have if we follow the spiritual path and we follow truth rather than trying to get that sense of bliss and this feeling of love, great love through drugs or sex or which I had all experienced. I had, spirit, I had experienced ecstasy in sex with this uh, abuser who wanted me, you know. And I'd experienced, certainly I'd been given a lot of drugs, and I'd experienced incredible highs on the drugs. So I gave, I was given this taste and then to know what to strive for, I think. And, and the instructions that helped me to never really do anything too crazy. The only thing is that sometimes I placed myself in situations that were not completely safe as a young adult, and then I ended up acting like a hero, but while placing myself in that situation first, so it's not a real hero. <laughs> <laughs> can, you be, can you be more specific if you're comfortable? I am thinking perhaps of one incident here in L.A. in Compton, um, driving through Compton, 2 a.m. in the morning in the 80s when I lived here. And I was with a friend, and I had an old car and was almost out of gas. We were going to get some gas. We had a couple of dollars of cash on us. <laughs> and I get some gas, and it was not a good scene at all. It was felt very dangerous and not the right place for a white woman at 2 a.m. And um, there was no gas attendant in the in the cubicle, and there was someone standing right next to it, and said, "I'll take, you know, I'll, I'm the I'm the attendant. I'll take it for you." I gave him, you know, my couple of dollars last cash that I had, and uh, and he filled his own car up with it, 
And so I started screaming at the guy. And I was really screaming. And so he, you know, obviously became angry. There were all these people around that were just waiting to see what was going to happen and Hmm. probably armed. And I was with a male friend. So he said, I'm not going to beat up a woman. I'm going to beat up the guy. And I literally picked up my friend, put him in the car, closed the door, went to the driver's seat, started the car, and yelled out, you are a disgrace to your race. (laughs) Insane. So there's this amazing strength that emerges that I had, you know, that, that comes when you're abused enough. There is this place where no one can do anything to you anymore. And so you know that there's, it's not the body. You, we're not the body. And so there's this otherworldly strength that takes over. And that happened in the network a few times. Um, I think I came in. I had some love as a baby from a caretaker. My mother was working. And um, so I knew what that probably love was. saved you, huh? Absolutely. And I knew what love was. And that's why I have the possibility. I didn't always have self-esteem, but I always had the capacity for self-esteem and I knew that it was wrong because of that. Without that, there would be no hope for me. And it's that, really amazing you're alive. Yes. I mean... I agree. I just, you know, put aside that you didn't die in the network. I would imagine 90% of the kids that did make it out of the network at some point killed themselves with drugs or suicide or and most didn't is the truth most children did not come out alive there is one woman alive her name's regina loof she's a spokesperson um she testified in the true trial and then i think went through some horrible repetition where the whole country had some something to say about her believing or not believing as if you know that matters. Mm-hmm. To me, it doesn't matter. Somebody doesn't believe me, I don't care. But I think to her, not having had this extensive healing, I think it was somewhat um, a repetition. and Of betrayal. And a, I think it became a repetition of what happened to her in the past. And yes, betrayals. And... Um, I hope she's doing well. I don't really have an, a lot of contact with anyone in Belgium. How how has what happened to you affected your sexuality? Well, I am asexual, so I um, can certainly um, enjoy sex now, which is part of the healing that for... Many, many years, I uh, couldn't feel anything at all. I was completely shut off. And then when I started to um, be active again, um, I realized, oh, yeah, my body works. It works, but I don't really care. So, yeah, there's this pleasure. And I always feel that I'm perverting a spiritual joy. And I'm bringing to this experience a spiritual quality of peace and bliss 
that is very enjoyable for the man, but I don't care. I don't really want to do it. So now I'm being true to that, just saying, no thanks. <laughs> we have a lot of listeners that are uh, asexual, and um, some were abused, some weren't. And uh, they feel very alone in terms of uh, how society views them, that that society wants to change them somehow, and um, and they resent it, and and that makes sense to me because let people have their own thing, let them be their Let it be all right, wherever we are at. Right. And I like the word asexual as a description, not as a label. So that's where I'm at. And I'm very happy within that, though. (laughs) I'm very happy that I got to that, um, that I realized, oh, yeah, that's true. If I look back, I never really was very into it. Even, you know, the, 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 the most intensive sexual experience I had um in in the network i didn't really want that intensity you know cuz that was also linked to fear and then in intense in terms of pleasurable to you yeah physically pleasurable because of the fear because i was being abused and because my abuser was sadistic and no. do you feel do you feel that that set you on a course then where um, for something to be sexually heightened there had to be some kind of external stimulus that was related to the abuse that you had experienced? I never looked for it. So I never wanted to go So you didn't try to seek that out because I know a lot of people will try to replay. I always knew that that was the wrong way to go. Yeah. I, I always knew that going to the sexuality was going to be the wrong venue. So I explored, but not ever in an unsafe way uh, or with unsafe people. That's amazing to me. I mean, that's that's just amazing because so many people that were abused become promiscuous. Well, I took my uh, instructions very, very literally, which really saved me. Um, it also included about drinking, and you know, it's mm-hmm. included drinking and drugs, and you know, not to buy drugs, but you can do them if someone gives them to you, but you can't do anything to get them. So this idea of don't become a prostitute. I mean, I took that and really took it, and I'm not saying that I never sold myself because I did. Uh, you know, it's not as if I always had this incredible integrity, not at all. After you got out, you did some, some prostitution? No, I didn't. But I did end up uh, at age 16. I was working in the Red District in Antwerp as a hostess. Okay. <laughs> Having drinks with men drinking orange juice that was called vodka orange, you know, and, and getting half of the proceeds from those drinks. And I felt it was dirty money, and so I left. But, you know, I, I was just naturally drawn to that. I just wouldn't sleep with the men, or I wouldn't touch. They wouldn't, I wouldn't touch them. Um, did, yeah. Did you go through a period where you had rage oh, yeah. at all men? Yes. Talk about that. 
it wasn't obvious. You know, I, I know I don't look like an angry person, right? <laughs> but I have, of course, so much anger in me, and it is my greatest, um, it's my greatest challenge is my anger. Now, what? So uh, the way that that would manifest this anger at men is that I would um, be with men that I didn't really like. And I, especially when I started to explore my sexuality, which wasn't all that long ago. So I didn't really like them, but I was with them. So my hatred of men, I mean, it backfired just as much as, you know, I may have broken a few hearts, but certainly backfired uh, because we weren't really vibing. <laughs> so they could, have, they could have been ahead of me and just, you know, hurt me first. And I was still attached because there was sexuality, and I still was attached because of the the sex. Um, so, but mostly, what I experienced was this automatic disrespect of men, and especially men in authority, men in positions of authority. I just had an an automatic disdain because I had seen. You know, I was raped by hundreds, two, about two hundred men. Oh my God. I am so sorry. Thank you. Over five, six years. So, so men in authority, and especially businessmen, especially balding, fat businessmen. Uh, are there, was, are there like any the other type. kinds? <laughs> <laughs> of course there are. I mean, all the startups. Um, I would just automatically despise them. And uh, especially men in power would be very drawn to that. Men in power would be drawn to what? To, to this, this sense that, that someone despises them because they have people wanting to come to them. Oh, that makes sense. And want to flatter them. And I would just, you know. And they want to chase. Despise them. And so, uh, right. And so what... And this is all very subtle, you know. I never really um, did anything, um, but basically, I would drop men in, and then I would hurt them. I would reject them without a word. Sometimes, you know, it just happens psychically. Draw men in, and then mm -hmm. when the moment came, you know, unlike when this um, young gangster made himself vulnerable, and I said I loved him, I instead, you know did what I could and just like cut his legs out. Yeah. Yeah. Just became cold and cruel, but all on a very subtle level, I have to say, um, without getting involved, without getting too much involved in relationships with those people. Um, also cause I was too scared. So I can't imagine how littered, with triggers, <laughs> I have a lot of your <laughs> daily life yes. must have been and continues. It continues to be. To be. Yeah, this microphone this literally is a trigger. It is. You know. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I shouldn't have them shaped like penises. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, to this day, when my wife will come up and touch me, she's like, "You recoil." 
from my touch. Yes. And it's because that's yes. the way, that's what my mom would do. She yes. would come up and she would drink me in with her eyes and she would stroke my skin and, and, and it, Ew, it, and it gross. just, um, my mother is like that too. It's just gross. Yeah. And, and it makes her sad. And, and I, you know, and I try, I try so fucking hard to not feel that way, but it's a trigger. Well, you got to honor it. That's all, right? Yeah. And that's what I do. I try to honor my triggers. And I have to say, coming to the United States from France, I was living in Paris at the time, has, I've really felt, I've really, um, there's a privilege, no doubt. I mean, the fact that I was European, spoke with a slight accent, a white, young woman, it just made things very easy. Uh, so I was actually able to, um, even the profile of the man I should marry was in the instructions, and I um, have never had to work. So I have this privilege. And so I've always been in a place where I could heal, I could focus on healing, and also could um, um, work with the triggers. You know, if I need an hour to prepare to go somewhere, you see, I came early, but it's not by accident because going somewhere, especially the first time, is a very big trigger. I bet. Because my mother used to take me in the car. So having to go somewhere is always, you know, loaded. So I oh, I prepare tremendously. I have to prepare a lot. So, um, and, you know, like taking my daughter to school has been a very big challenge. And, you know, so I've had to meet it. And I've become sometimes over, you know, I really prepare. I try to control it and preparing it. But I'm aware that I'm triggered. And I'm aware that it's that it's there, that it's an issue. And so I can work around it. Now, if I had to work full-time and I had all these triggers, it would be a different story. I wouldn't be able to honor them as much as I do. How, When you say you haven't had to work, how do you get around having to work? Well, I, I do have to work, actually. I mean, I'm, this is past. Okay, past. <laughs> in the past, because you were with uh, men who supported you? Or? I was with my husband, basically, who, who uh, was the profile, exact profile described, um, a uh, son of uh, New York bankers uh, at my age, not an older man who made his own fortune. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I, um, I've been privileged, and so I know that. Um, I know that I'm privileged, and... Um, it's it's helped me to have this time um, to work with triggers and to work around them. And um, I am now working more than ever in my life. I'm working very hard. It's the first time I've really been passionate about something. Um, and so, but I still have to work constantly with the triggers because I I will spend sometimes seventy hours w a week working and I I really uh, need all my tools to to remain you know mentally healthy <laughs> mm -hmm. and and give time to the triggers sometimes uh, I can't imagine how many triggers there must be going into the prison system or at least initially. No, uh, well, I actually felt right at home because it does remind me of the network in certain ways, and I felt good there, if you remember. 
Um, but also, I, f- I guess I felt the, the chaos. Um, well, I first went to San Quentin, so there were all these men, men there, but I wasn't really worried at all um, because I didn't really notice psychopaths. The, I didn't really notice the people from my past because, as you said, you know, they don't get caught. So, um, no, I felt right at home. And I instead of meeting those people that were psychopaths, I actually met people more like me that I could really relate to, men and women. People who had been abused. Who have trauma in their past. And I found that the men that I was there to see, they were so sweet and humble. And so I found exactly the opposite mm-hmm. of what I thought I would find. I find a, found a population that is uh, victimized. I think, too, when you, I was sharing with Annika that I've, um, I go into uh, jails here in L.A. Uh, sometimes and talk about living without drugs and alcohol. And I was very nervous before I first started going in there. This was you know maybe nine years ago. And the thing that shocked me was you 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 know you get a group of gang members or you know whatever these people had done they're in jail but you get them in a day room outside of the rest of the population they are looking for a chance to let their guard down and stop being the tough guy and i've had you know gang members with shaved heads and the tat you know the teardrop tattoo right um break down and say that they're tired of living the way they're living and to this day it's it's one of the safest places that i feel is that day room with these guys that i know if the riot were to happen they would protect me absolutely and i feel the same way teaching the uh, male population they they have my back completely um sweet men there it's like there's this this seed in them that is trying to grow and they it just needs it just needs water it needs love (laughs) it it does it does need love now you know that's not to say i don't occasionally have to kick a couple of these guys out because they're uh being disrespectful they're testing they're testing and i'm not going to put up with their shit and it scares the fuck out of me to say hey listen you you go out (laughs) scared the shit out of me first time i had to do it but they are the overwhelming minority of the group of people that that I've uh, that I've encountered. But I want to know about your experience. My and experiences, yes, I've met just. Give me some said, some snapshots of. Well, as far as protecting, for example, one of my students um, um, was walking out behind me, and someone was looking at me, and it really didn't feel safe. It was not only lecherous; there was some clearly aggression, and I didn't know how to respond. I mean, it was very momentary. You know, I was just on my way, you know, mm-hmm. I was just standing right. He was the person who was closest to me. And my student was right behind me and said, keep your head up. To and you? To me. Mm-hmm. And I looked straight in the eyes of the person who was looking at me that way. And that's how I could move on because I was inclined to look down. And if I had looked down, he might have thought I was submissive. And it may have, you know, turned the other way. I, I really don't know. But my student was right there mm. helping me in that moment and knew exactly what was going on and had my back. 
give me give me some other snapshots from your experiences in teaching um, people. Well, I uh, told you on the way over that I'd have a group with uh, women that have been uh, sexually trafficked, and so. I do feel, you know, there's we all have these different degrees of how we feel useful, right? Which helps us to 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 get up in the morning, right? <laughs> so, uh when I teach uh hatha yoga to the general population, I feel well, you know, there's a lot of people that can do that a lot better than me. And what type me. of yoga is it? Well, it's yoga, uh but our programs are trauma informed, so we don't use any commands. It's quite different and there's always a discussion, there's always a, the most important you call it the, the hatha or something hatha yoga just to describe it's not necessarily what is called hatha yoga in the studios just to describe that it's the physical aspect of yoga i see so we do that mostly okay how do you spell always. it h a t h a yes okay which i use to just say physical i see yoga exercises As opposed we to generally know it yeah um but we always have discussion we have groups where we have led discussions and then we have a uh, stream of consciousness writing and then we have shares at the end uh, that can be very powerful that was a pilot program that we did and we teach in a in a trauma informed way so we're very uh gentle in the way that we speak and physically it's going to be on the level that the class can do you know whatever that level is so it can be usually it's beginners with the women and with the men sometimes it becomes intermediate especially in prison also when we have students over longer periods of time they become physically more capable so we do more um intermediate to advanced classes but the way that we teach is very different yoga teachers are taught to teach by commanding so we don't use any not a single one throughout the whole class if we can help it so um and it doesn't detract from the time nor does it make it wishy-washy at all it's rather um a respectful way of speaking to someone asking instead of uh commanding or just speaking in the first person i am doing this mm. so that people always know that they have a choice and we are also very clear that whatever we do they just are there we are it's really about self care mm. uh we insert a lot of messages of self acceptance and self love did did you learn that from being in support groups the the uh, not commanding because that to me has been one of the greatest things about support groups is they don't tell you what to do there are maybe suggestions or you watch somebody and learn from their example i learned a whole lot from support groups yeah support groups really really opened my eyes and yes that was the first strong experience that i had there that it's up to me i can you know i'm accepted here i qualify <laughs> mm-hmm. but i don't have to do anything and i think yes that this philosophy from the groups from the from the rooms really translated into when i was starting to do the yoga that says hey, let's just do this in a way that helps people to feel the way i felt when right. i went to the groups yeah um and we're respectful and um so whatever it is with the women that have been sex trafficked i we don't do physical yoga we do a group that is based on an SIA model uh from self um incest survivors anonymous 
and um, I have permission to to speak about SIA. Um, it's a wonderfully supportive supportive group. I've gotten so much from the group and the community and the phone line and uh, the meetings. And um, so I used our started by using our format that we use in the meeting and then adapted it over time to suit the population better, the language simpler, no 12 steps, no sponsorship, but, you know, we have this group that meets every week and we inserted um, moments of silence and then we um, discuss at the end. So we have the shares and then everyone has to, you know, hold on because they don't want to share really badly. They all have so much that they need to share. So (laughs) many prisoners are just bursting, bursting bursting with wanting to share. I'll even sometimes say we don't have time for people to share because we only have about five minutes left, but do you have any questions? And guys will raise their hands and they'll just start sharing with no questions. (laughs) And I'd be like, oh man, these guys are just dying to be heard. Yes. Just dying to be heard. And because of that, I really had to structure the group and it's it's a challenge, but um, I also share, and I know that there with that population, I bring hope because they look at me and they go, "Wow, you went through that, you survived that." Then there's hope for me, and they'll say it, and 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 I know it's true. I know it's inspiring, and um, they give me so much. But I feel particularly useful because I know all these issues because whatever they're bringing, I've been there, so. I can go to the specifics of the emotional reality and address it and and be with them. And so it's, it's beautiful. Isn't it weird how the most painful things in our lives can be the very thing that gives our life meaning and purpose? Absolutely. And I, I have to say, and this may sound really weird, um, but I don't regret anything. I feel that the insights that I've received on this path are absolutely what I needed and wanted. What do you say to somebody who's out there and listening and just feeling traumatized by their story and can't imagine how they could get to a place where they would ever feel grateful for what happened to them? What would you say to them? Well, first of all, I want to say I totally understand. (laughs) (laughs) I totally understand. I mean, trauma is overwhelming. That's the first thing. Um, You don't have to be grateful. Um, Everything that I do is for me first. Going into the prisons is part of my healing. And I don't say that selfishly. I say that as my life really is in the context of healing because it has to be. So wherever you are, the most important thing that you can do is to just really accept it and really say, hey, I'm here. Um, That's fine. There's nothing wrong with being right exactly where I am. It's okay. It's okay to be right here. And sometimes I, I, I tell students, If you really knew, uh, if you were in touch with all the feelings relating to your trauma, you would fully understand why you're here now, emotionally. So if you don't understand why you're there and you feel like you should be farther along, forget it. You're there for a reason. 
it's fine. You're there because you need to be there. And yoga sounds like such a perfect vehicle for acceptance because whenever people start yoga, myself included, my first thoughts are, I'm not doing this right. I'm not flexible enough. <laughs> I suck at this. And the one thing I hear teachers say over and over again is, there is no ideal for yoga. It's wherever you are at it right now. If you can only reach forward two inches to stretch your legs, that's okay. Right. There is that vehicle, the physical vehicle, that every pose is a constriction. And within that constriction, there's choice. You can stretch those two inches or not. That's the whole point. You don't need to. We're doing this. There's a pose. There's a form doesn't matter what the form is. You just make your choice whether you want to go deeper and have physical sensations or whether you don't want to go deep and you want to take it easy today. You just take care of yourself and whatever choice you make, there's no wrong choice. There's no mm. wrong thoughts. Not, not in this practice. There's nothing that you can do that is wrong. What does yoga give you aside from teaching yoga and bringing it to other people your personal relationship with yoga what is it giving you well my physical practice has always been the perfect physical therapy so as i said i should be a cripple but i'm not i did many things and i still run i still do other things but yoga is physical therapy and it makes me feel so good physically and of course mentally it, we know that it uh, alleviates depression as well and um, for a long time, I did quite extreme, you know, kind of physical yoga because I had so much anger and so much, you know, to get out of my system. So that's what I needed to do. I, I imagine you had so much trauma trapped in your body. Yeah, yeah. And Ashtanga yoga was like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Just <laughs> get it all out. <laughs> um, and so yoga really helped me to get back in touch with my body and accept it. And... But I do see yoga as a way of life. You know, everything is yoga to me. There's nothing that's not yoga because everything, every aspect of my life is part of this spiritual journey that is towards a greater truth and certainly greater love. I feel that I am aligning, trying to align myself more with love and that that's the right thing to do, that that's our our role that's our job so where can somebody start and i completely uh, agree and um know that feeling when because my life used to be dominated by anger yes mine too and selfishness and as i began to heal and support groups and began to learn how to get vulnerable and was able to give and receive love then love became greater than anger and I started to get more peace. But to the person out there who has more anger than love, that just can't, has trouble giving love, and just cannot get enough love, or doesn't want love, what do you say to them? Well, the problem is really that it's hard to receive love, because it's really all about self-love first. We can't give to others what we don't have ourselves. So the problem often with people who've been very traumatized, and my own problem, is how do we receive love? You know, we may not recognize it, first of all. Um, or it may be triggering. And 
Yes, and certainly with uh, sexual abuse, uh, the idea of love may, may seem really creepy. So, it, so it's the quest for unconditional love, right? We want to know what is unconditional. So, these messages of self uh, affirmation and self acceptance and embracing the anger. I mean, anger is very important. We have to accept that we're angry and we have to embrace it. And we have to say, hey, this comes from some place. And whatever place it comes from makes it that it's completely valid for me to have these feelings of anger. So have them. And if they can possibly be directed, not inside a trigger, but to the original source, I guess that's the work that so we try to do. do some detective work and find out what the source of that anger is, either through therapy or support groups yeah. or self-help books or absolutely. anything. Absolutely. And, and then... So it's like research into the self. Yeah. Because you're looking into your own psyche. If you... Um, I mean, it's my greatest challenge is anger. So there's a part that, you know, self-control never quite worked. This, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not... It never quite worked, and it really is what you say, that the love had to become greater. I still, you know, I still f- will uh, lash out, you know, and I lash out. At You're root. a monster. I become a monster. <laughs> I just judge you and well, end the interview right now. Once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Have you gotten angry during our interview? No. Okay. I don't become angry at random people. I become angry at my daughter. Talk about that. Well, she has been my motivation. Without her, I would have never realized that I have not only so much work to do, but I would have not, I would have killed myself before doing this work because it was very painful. So, she is my motivation and at the same time, the impulses and, com- com- and the compulsions um, regarding anger, nothing else, but regarding anger. Um, I noticed that I had a problem. I knew that I had a problem, and she was still quite young. Four or five is when I started to you know, yell at her. So it's been a really great journey. In fact, the support groups really helped me to first again, embrace where I was at and just um, say, it's okay, you know. Um, I There's a new day today and I can start again. I don't have to like, get in the cycle of guilt where I compulsively will do it again because I'm in a cycle. So, and um, I still, to this day, I and mean, it's really about um, increasing the love. This means increasing the self-love. Service is a fantastic way to get in touch with, to receive love. Talk about that more because a lot of people are like, what? How how does being of service to other people, how does that loving yourself? Right. Well, there's a way to do it. You can go in as a teacher. You can't go in as, you know, I'm above you guys and I'm teaching you something or, you know, you poor people, I'm giving you soup, right? No. You have to go in as, and, and really share with yourself, yourself with others. And that is how I believe you 
give to the helpless, powerless child inside yourself, maybe the child that was abused. And that's how you give to others vicariously. You give to that child by giving to others in need. And that child is going to start feeling very happy and start feeling safe. And connected. And connected. And this is the thing. You, do, you have no idea. You go to give, but you really receive. You really receive. And it's possible to receive it because it's just, you couldn't not receive it. You, it's just all there. That's one of the reasons why I'm also a big believer in having like a weekly or monthly commitment to do something that's of service because you're always going to battle that part of your brain that wants to stay home, that doesn't want to go do it that day. But if you have it built into your schedule that, no, you're expected to be here, then you get off your ass and you go and do it. And you, I always feel better when I leave, even though an hour before doing it, I was dreading to, to go do it. And that's my experience, and, and that we have about 30 teachers that work re- with us. That's everybody's experience. You don't maybe, you might not feel like going, but you always feel better when you leave. Always. Always. Anything else that you'd like to uh, share? I, th- I think I had a couple more questions, but I'm, I'm kind of blanking out on them uh, right now. Um, what is the website for your uh, program? Um, our website is www.liberationprisonyoga.com. Um, was it very triggering for you? And it sounds like this might have been when the anger started coming up at your daughter was when she got to the age where you were when you had begun to get abused. Because I hear a lot of people share that is their emotions get very intense when they see what they looked like at the age that they were taken advantage of. That's right. And yes. Do you think your anger was related to your daughter getting near that age that you were? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the first years, you know, I had done so much work on myself before I had her, and I was very scared, you know, about anything that I may pass along to her. So the first years, I think were um were lovely because I had that love from the caregiver, and so it was easy and also because we were comfortable. but the moment I had to bring her to school, so in preschool, I would bring her an hour late, and you know we could just relax all day but um when I had to get her to school on time because she was going to public school, and suddenly she got you know, a late notice and teacher said, no, she can't come, come late. I uh, was just overwhelmed with this pressure. So the, this, the t- trigger, my mother took me at, you know, in the car and it was sometimes in the daytime, sometimes at night, but she would become extremely agitated before bringing me. She always seemed to think that we were going to be late. There's all this fear that got in and all of that just started to come up in me having to bring my daughter to a place at a certain time so that started when she was four and it was a lot of work because my mother's I didn't have that caretaker anymore after the age of three so 
my blueprint wasn't ideal at all, and I had to really draw, and I lost my therapist at the same time. Um, my, and, and my marriage ended, so I suddenly found myself very alone. So it's, it, it was very difficult, yeah. And, but it was very clear that I have to get out. I mean, I was determined because I knew I, I could recognize enough, you know, that I am hurting her and I knew, I knew that I could get out. Yeah, and I think that's what's such a uh, great, why that's such a great example of you're going to have hurdles. You just got to go, okay, how do I deal with this? I'm being triggered right now, or this is scaring the shit out of me, or whatever. And that's what healing to me is. It's just almost like a factory line, like Lucy with the cakes. Uh, we're, okay, here comes another cake. We're, we're not going to be overwhelmed. You know, this is just uh, one cake at a time. <laughs> Maybe they're going to start piling up on the floor, but it's not the end of the world. Maybe we right. can laugh about it. Um, once my guilt complex was, I guess, pretty much healed, but I had this enormous guilt complex. And when I was 50 years old, I wrote about the experience of what I was made to do, the violence I was made to commit. And when I wrote it down, I finally realized that it wasn't my fault. And after that, it became much easier after was this publicly that you wrote this or just privately? Privately. Mm -hmm. Privately. It was a private moment. But I was 50 years old already. 49, in fact. I was 49 years old. And I finally, before with this guilt complex, this secret fear that I'm evil, always lingering, I really had trouble getting out of the cycle. So I had to get over this guilt complex first and then... Meanwhile, I have to say that the outbursts had, you know, they were, first they started to, you know, be less frequent and then less intense. After you wrote or before you wrote? Way before okay. already. I had worked on this for a really mm -hmm. long time, you know, since um, my daughter was four. So it was like 2003 since then. And that's when my marriage ended and everything, mm -hmm. you know. So... Um, I wrote my book. I mean, I wrote the book that I'm still writing, but I wrote my story down. And um, and in the writing down of that story, everything came. So I got in touch really with the source of my anger, um, of this violent anger. And um, I remembered certain other things that I wasn't aware of. So... It was a long journey, but the guilt complex com complicated everything. And so what I say to my students is, is it's always about this self-acceptance. You know, if you're there, you need to um, embrace where you, you can embrace where you are. It's okay. And um, there was something I wanted to say about the guilt complex itself. This voice that is really this voice that I fear that I'm evil, I fear that I'm bad, I realized, well, that's not my voice. 
That's the voice of my abusers. So being able to witness and recognize this voice and always know that these negative, this negative self-talk, that that's not even me, um, that's very helpful. And it's been very powerful for a lot of my students because, of course, they're in this environment where they get treated as evil all day long. And that's often a repetition for them, too. Mm-hmm. They're used to that. So when I say that, this is not even your voice. This is a voice from from abusers. That's very powerful. Have you ever shared with anyone what the violence was that you were forced to commit? Yes. Uh, in our groups where we, where we discuss, um, certainly. And sometimes I'll share something because really the most important thing that we are there to do is to connect on a mm-hmm. human level. And so sometimes it's hard. So sometimes I will say something like, I know what it's like to be imprisoned. I know what it's like to be treated as though I'm bad all day long because I was in a situation like that. And then they'll connect. Then they'll say, oh, okay, you're like us. Okay, good. Annika, thank you so much for uh, sharing all this stuff and um, being such a great example of uh, healing and uh, the importance of meaning and purpose in, uh, in one's life. Oh, well, thank you very much, Paul. Many, many thanks to, uh, to Annika and to the listener who suggested that I get in contact with her to uh, have her as a guest. Um, for some of those, uh, so, some of you who listened to that episode, um, you may you may have been skeptical because her story is so dramatic. Um, but I can tell you, having spent time with her during that interview, we've hung out a couple of times uh, since then. Um, I got to uh, have breakfast with her again in Brooklyn when I when I was there, and uh, I can tell you, sitting across the table from buddy from from somebody in person. Um, I, I am not the least bit skeptical about all the things that she shared with me. And she shared with me some more details of, uh, of the stuff that not only happened to her, but the things that, um, that she had to do the violence to, to, to escape. Um, which she, as she said, she blamed herself, uh, for years for that. And, uh, and, and that kept her from, from coming forward because she thought, she thought she was evil, and I'm so glad that she knows now uh, that she's not and that she was a child. And uh, it's amazing how that shame. I, got, I, I experienced some shame this last this last week, and it was so visceral. You know, it came up in me, and um, uh, I shouldn't say that somebody shamed me, but I allowed somebody to shame me, and um, because I believed it, and um, it. It. I just I felt nauseous. My face felt hot, and thank God for my wife because I was able to to call her, and um, and she helped kind of talk me down. But there was uh, there was a there was a uh, you know probably a good day where I had the feeling where I was like I want to throw myself off a bridge because I want this feeling to go away. And um, it uh, thankfully it, it it eventually passed, but um, 
God, shame is so toxic. It's so toxic. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is, uh, the, the, the surveys today I'm reading are basically all struggle in a sentence and what has helped you. Um, I just felt like the interview was so heavy on kind of dark um, sexual stuff that I, I, I didn't want to read any, any surveys that kind of covered that same ground. Um, so if you're somebody who's triggered by surveys, I, I don't think this will be a stretch of surveys that you will you will feel triggered by. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Spats Shambolic about her trichotillomania. She writes, I know it's disgusting and I know you can see me, but it's the only act that can make me feel clean about her codependency. Whenever there's a silence between us, I ask if you're okay while scrutinizing your facial expression and tone of voice because somehow my brain won't believe you if you answer if your answer is positive. I always oh, I so relate to that one. Um, about her self-destructive behavior, she writes, Trust me, I know what I am doing. I purposefully bought the car without brake fluid. Oh, I purposefully bought the only car without brake fluid. Wow, that is heavy. Um, snapshot from her life. Uh, she writes, I was sitting in class, drunk, and sipping on a whiskey and apple juice mix contained in a plastic bottle labeled juice when a fellow classmate asked for a sip. I was unable to think of a valid excuse other than it's got a hidden extra that I don't think you're prepared for. So mainly because I'm an apathetic drunk, I just let it happen and then pretended not to notice their coughing fit and disgusted confusion after they had a drink. Needless to say, they actively avoided me for the rest of the year, which suited me just fine because I was also happy isolating myself from my peers and the world. This is filled out by, this is what has helped you, filled out by um, a gay man named Justin Time. He's in his 60s and uh, his issues are anxiety, bipolar cyclothymia, um, oh, bi bipolar cyclothymia type, uh, Horrible projection, panic, worry, intrusive thoughts, vertigo, and dizziness, and fear. Well, I'm going to guess one of your issues isn't constipation. My God, that is that is a nervous system uh, uh, revving. What has helped you? Uh, transcendental meditation has been a blessing. Listening to calming vocalists like uh, Eva Cassidy, Jackson Brown, Jennifer Warnes, Sam Baker, Sanders me. Uh, uh, rollerblading daily, prayer, laughing, and sharing with friends. What if what has somebody said or done that has helped you? Talking with others who let me know I'm not alone and just having people in my life who care about me helps. Thank you for that. Uh, this is uh, Shame and Secrets 
Oh no, I'm sorry, struggle in a sentence filled out by Ginger Snap about her depression. She writes, my bipolar is like being a suicide bomber. Some days the conviction over something totally irrational makes me want to blow up my world. Nuclear. Destroy it. Or I let myself live another day, still knowing I have the dynamite strapped to my chest every day. Snapshot from her life. 28 years old, my first major manic bipolar one break. In the span of five months, I was fired from my job, mainly due to my depression, celebrated a wonderful one-year anniversary with my loving husband, then it happened fast. I cheated on my husband, not the first time, started to spin into mania, continued a long-distance relationship with this new man, lost 10 pounds, stopped sleeping, filed for divorce, moved out, and packed my things to move across the country for my new romantic interest, whom was still married to his wife. And it would still be months before they divorced. Funny how being out of my mind manic made these changes so much easier. It all seemed perfectly rational at the time. Uh, got bipolar? Wow, that is uh, that is intense. This is the What Has Helped You survey filled out by a woman who calls herself I Am Not My Mental Illness. Her issues are depression, compulsive behaviors, and anxiety. What has helped her? Uh, medication and CBT uh, were and are incredibly helpful, particularly with finding the right psychologist and counselor that I felt like I could be open and honest. I do my best to live a healthy lifestyle and I stick to a routine to help keep my stress down, which triggers my anxiety um, and allows my meds to work properly. I don't really like having to take medication, but I am being as healthy as I can. My meds give me that little extra push to keep going. What have people said or done that have helped you? Uh, learn uh, Listening without trying to problem solve. Oh, that's such a huge one. Uh, when people start jumping to solutions after I open up, it makes me feel like they only heard the problem and not my feelings. The best thing someone did for me uh, was help me call a therapist and they drove me to my first appointment and made me feel less alone and this daunting task became doable. Now, if you look at that on the surface, surface, you would say, well, that person was trying to fix your problem. But I, I think the difference is, is they were participating in it, which is a sign of, of love and that they are feeling you. Because if they didn't feel you, I don't think that they would go to the effort to do that. Um, but you know, the sentence that you said, um, it makes me feel like they only heard the problem and not my feelings, is... Um, that is such a concise way of uh, describing what can turn us off to, to opening up to people. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Martha the Mess uh, about having borderline personality disorder. She writes, it makes me feel like I'm less than human. I can't relate to people. I can't be without people. I can't understand people and all I want is to be loved. I get what I think I want and I spiral out of control with insecurity and fear. I lose what I want and I wish I was dead. Medication after medication doesn't help. Actually makes it worse. I know I'm not this horrible person, but the voice in my head is so strong and so cruel that it beats me down until I feel like nothing. I wonder if I'll ever get better. Can I beat this? I'm so scared I can't. Well, I don't know that much about borderline personality disorder, but one of the things that I've had heard, uh, especially from talking to um, our guest uh, uh, psychiatrist uh, Melanie Watkins, she said that the, that typically borderline personality disorder can't be 
um, managed uh, really just with meds. It's not something you can throw meds at, but one of the things that can greatly help is dialectical behavior therapy. So if you haven't done that yet, you might uh, find a therapist that specializes in that. And I, I, you know, I had to deal with somebody who I think has borderline personality disorder recently. And the image that I just had of them was that they are a porcupine trying to get a hug. And it broke my heart because I was trying, I was trying to reach this person and all I got was the needles. And I, I, one of the things I learned was to not take it personally and to not make it a, I'm your, I'm right, you're wrong. You know, one of the things I hear about dialectical behavior therapy is a lot of it is, um, reaffirming that you hear what that person is saying and, um, and that you understand what they're saying. Anyway, um, this is from the What Has Helped You survey. And this was filled out by, a woman who calls herself Antiphony. Uh, her issue, issues are depression, a uh, history of self-harm and bulimia, low self-esteem, persistent feelings of loneliness, emotionally distant parents, and healing from an emotionally abusive relationship. What has helped you deal with them? Singing. A few years ago, I decided to take up private lessons. While I was aware that I was a novice, I thought I'd be at least an okay singer since I'd learned I'd been learning piano for most of my life and was quite musically inclined. Turns out, I really sucked. I was so depressed after my first singing lesson that I nearly scrapped it altogether. But I'd already already scheduled in a bunch of lessons, so I made myself practice every day because I didn't want to embarrass myself by continuing to suck or even worse, being a quitter. After about a... Hey, you know, if you ever want to be a quitter, just email me. I'll uh, actually... I got a book out called, uh, come on, let's quit together. After about a week, I realized I enjoyed the sensation of singing so much, the vibrations it caused in my body and the sense of release it gave me that I didn't really care about sucking anymore. I got hooked on the process of learning and improving, and now, three years on, I can finally say I have a pretty nice voice. When I'm feeling sad, I go to the piano, choose one of the most heart-wrenchingly sad songs I know, and for those three and a half minutes, I'm transported out of the murkiness of my thought-riddled mind into a present moment. It's like my mind is cleared and nothing else matters. When I play a particular chord or sing a note clearly on pitch with just right, the right amount of vibrato, I'm surprised that beautiful sound is coming from me. Sometimes it's like I lose all sense of ego and become merely a conduit for the music, which seems to come from somewhere way above and outside of me, as much as it seems to come from literally inside of me. I'm not a religious person, but this is the closest I ever come to experiencing a higher power or something bigger than myself. You just described, too, how I feel sometimes when I play guitar or um, I do comedy. It is the feeling of something passing through me. So I very much relate to that, and I'm so glad that you found something that... um, that moves you and calms you and uh, allows you to to express yourself. Uh, what have people said or done that has helped you? My singing teacher has been like the mother and therapist I never had. She has this gentle way of speaking, even when she's delivering criticism, that makes me feel at ease. She taught me the genuine expression of emotions is the most valuable thing a singer can have. This helped me overcome the perfectionistic tendencies 
that years of classical training had instilled in me, as well as my crippling stage fright. <laughs> there should be a band named, named Crippling Stage Fright. I, I would pay to see them without hearing any of their songs. She taught me how to be vulnerable, brave, and unapologetic all at the same time. She taught me to make the most of the voice I was born with, that while I was never going to sound exactly like Dionne Warwick, I had my own voice that was special and powerful. And most importantly, she taught me how to accept praise and to be kind to myself. Thank you for that. This is a uh, struggle in a sentence filled out by uh, Marie about her depression. She writes, severe depression, wanting to shout to those people closest to me that I just need you to listen to and love me, but my tongue has been cut out of my mouth. About her PTSD, the triggers are like having to take the biggest shit ever and there is nowhere to squat. I mean nowhere. Uh, thank you for that. I, you know, I love any good shit, shit analogy. Is it an analogy or a metaphor? I don't know. This is from What Has Helped You, filled out by a guy who calls himself an alternate name for Rose. And um, what has helped you? Uh, his issues are high-functioning autism slash nonverbal learning disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, severe seasonal affective disorder, uh, and addiction. And what helped? What have people done or said that has helped you? And um, he said, I've had a couple of close friends who, when I've called in the middle of the night in a panic, break down mode, say, hold on, I'll be at your house in an hour. And they are true to their word. Whether it's talking through my issues or simply providing a means of distraction through a movie or conversation, or even, uh, and this is almost juvenile and childish, take me out for ice cream. Everyone should be so lucky. I'm a fan of the ice cream one. I think that's awesome. I think I think they're all awesome. This is struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself can't sleep won't sleep and about her sex addiction she writes guilt shame embarrassment though it is in my past I feel like I walk through a graveyard of past partners every day their headstones read here lies another empty soul who couldn't fill yours and loving loving memory of someone who loved fucking you but could never love you the way you deserved thank you for that a lot of people don't understand how serious sex and love addiction is. That it, it is deadly. It is deadly. This is filled out by... This is the What Has Helped You survey filled out by Struggling Parent. And she writes uh, that her issues are severe depression, anxiety, and complex PTSD. Um, I think somebody should build a building uh, of apartments called the PTSD Complex. Pardon my stupid jokes tonight. I uh... What has helped you deal with them? Therapy, yoga, taking walks in nature or at the gym, spending time with my husband, guided meditation apps, meds, affirmations, sharing my stories with supportive people, making crafts, watching movies. What, if anything, have people said or done for you that have helped you with your issues? Uh, my therapist reminds me of the idea of the good enough mother, a concept coined by David Donald Winnicott. I beat myself up. Beat. Why is my printer suddenly printing? I beat myself up all the time. Um, I actually have a. Uh, there's a ghost in our house that is very productive. Um, likes to do a lot of word processing. 
Uh, I beat myself up all the time because I think that I'm not a good enough mother, but my therapist reminds me that being a good parent is not about perfection, but about making yourself mentally available to your kids and helping them feel safe. Well said. I'm not a parent, but that makes perfect sense to me. This is The Struggle in a Sentence. Uh, the Struggle in a Sentence. Uh, the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Kate and um, her serious health issue uh, she writes, I feel like I don't deserve uh, to call myself a cancer survivor because I never had to have chemo or radiation. My cancer doesn't feel cancery enough, despite it taking a huge toll on me. I wonder if a cancer survivor support group would be a good place to, to, oh, oh actually, she just writes here that I, uh, you know, because she's young, she writes, I tried to find a, um, Cancer Survivor Support Group for Young People uh, of Ovarian Cancer, but there aren't any. Well, I wonder I wonder if you could go to one that aren't for young people and um, still share your, your issues. Because a lot of times it's not necessarily the issues as much as it is the universal feelings that we're all having, um, which is usually you know, low self-esteem, uh, you, know, um, you, know the, you know the greatest hits. This is from the What Has Helped You survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, actually she's a teenager, she's 16, she calls herself Chronic Life. Her issues are chronic pain, depression, anxiety, and trauma from an assault. What's helped you? I took a notebook and wrote, I deserve to be loved. I am here and that is enough. Over and over again. I was feeling really bad and just wanted to hurt myself, but I did that instead. It was the first time that I didn't feel selfish about wanting something positive for myself. At first, I thought it was stupid, but I started to feel better the further I got. I felt free for a while and didn't end up hurting myself. With being in pain all the time, writing helps me release it in a healthy way and makes me feel empowered. Wow, I am struck by how mature your intuition is to to do that. And, you know, maybe that's kind of similar to uh, what Annika talked about in her interview um, having survived so many assaults at such a young age that it it kind of that this other part of her brain came alive that there was something more in the world almost like um, you get this different perspective when you're in a tremendous amount of pain sometimes it's um, anyway uh, things people have said or done that have helped you uh, that it was okay that I was upset that I didn't have to be okay and that, that they were there if I needed anything. They didn't try to fix it. They were just there. Beautiful. Beautiful. This is from the uh, Struggle in a Sentence. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Recovery Doesn't Get a Day Off about her depression, uh, which is dysthymia in her case, living in a body that fights to survive with a mind that tries to die. That's Hall of Fame. That's Hall of Fame right there about generalized anxiety disorder, hearing dramatic music get louder and louder and louder, but never seeing the threat. You are good at this. About her anorexia, uh, which she specifies as eating disorder, not, not otherwise specified, the constant voice saying, you're too fat to have an eating disorder. I have heard so many people share that, and it just breaks my heart that on top of all the shit they're dealing with, that they don't feel like they belong 
uh, don't ever let anybody judge whether or not you have an, an eating disorder. If if food causes you anxiety and um, to break promises to yourself um, and feels addictive, it is an eating disorder and fuck what anybody else thinks. Uh, about her social anxiety, I'm an actor constantly rehearsing lines for everyday conversations. When will this play end? Man, you are good at this. Thank you for that. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Angela, Angela Chase. Um, her issues are PTSD and generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, what's helped you? Having grown up in a very unpredictable environment, setting up routines in my adult life, as well as being able to provide a predictable and stable life for my own children gives me a lot of satisfaction. Exercise and a lot of comedy helps too. What have people said or done that has helped you? It was extremely hard for me to talk about my past trauma with my therapist. During a particularly tough session, I was able to talk for the first time about a pretty traumatic event. When I finished talking, it was, what the fuck is going on with my printer? When I was finished talking, it was quiet for a bit, and then he said, if someone had done that to my daughter, I think I'd be in jail for killing them. It was such an uncharacteristic break in his professional demeanor that I was taken aback. But it meant so very much to me because it was just so human. It made me realize how little my own parents had done to help me. And for the first time, it made me think that I had deserved someone to be angry for me in the past. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. I love when people have breakthrough moments with their therapists. I love when I have. Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself, uh, starts, name starts with M. This is a struggle in a sentence about her love addiction. Anytime anyone shows me any kind of affection or kindness, I am lit up for hours like a firework, exploding. When someone doesn't respond how I would like, I think they hate me. Snapshot from her life. Hating myself so much that I latch onto a favorite celebrity and ingrain myself in them. I take over their interests, fashion, even foods or hair color, and use them as my own. Anything I have legitimately liked on my own or discovered myself, I've ignored, removed myself from, or thrown away certain things to erase it from me. I wonder if I am a fake person, if my mental issues are false. I've yet to see a therapist, but I worry about using someone else and trying to find myself through them is the fake is the fakest thing of all. I you know, I would I wouldn't use the word fake. Um I would just say um that it's not organic uh to you. That it's that it's um it's a distraction from you. But that is not that doesn't mean that you're a fake person. You're a person in pain who is struggling to to find a, a sense of self, which I think we all do. And the most convenient place is we try to find a reflection of ourselves in others, but it, it can really be a dead-end street, so I think therapy would be a great thing for you. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Jay, and she writes, I took physics in high school. The teacher was funny and engaging, and while physics isn't really my thing, his enthusiasm for the subject material and my desire to do well meant that I paid attention, and never more so than when he described in explicit detail what happens when someone jumps off the Golden Gate Bridge to commit suicide just as my father had 10 years earlier. That is so fucked up. That is so very fucked up. I wonder if that occurred to him that, that I mean, that just seems like a really bad 
thing, you know, describe a watermelon falling off a building or, or, or something else, but at least he cared about his, uh, his subject matter. This is Struggle in a Sentence filled out by Jess uh, about her depression. She writes, major depression feels like those dreams you have where suddenly your legs feel like sandbags and you try to run, but you can barely lift your feet. Snapshot from her life. I'm at work and I ask to speak with my boss privately, alone in his office. My heart is in my throat when I tell him that I will be taking time off of work to get psychiatric help. In a gentle voice, he tells me he understands and that he has dealt with his own struggles. I try not to cry. That is so beautiful. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Over the Rainbow. And she writes, this is the, the, the first... I'll try this again. This is the first time I've ever voluntarily attended therapy. I am tired of my childhood traumas affecting how I feel about myself. I am tired of believing I am not worthy of love. I described all of this to my counselor and she said, you are a wonderful person with so much to offer. I can help you work through your trauma and change those core beliefs. Hearing her compliment me made me uncomfortable because I don't believe those things about myself yet. But having someone tell me that my feelings matter and there is a way out gave me so much hope. I'm about to start EMDR therapy and I'm really scared to revisit those awful memories, but I know in my heart that I will be better from it. I sought therapy through rainn.org because you mentioned it on your podcast. Thank you. Well, you know I love. Almost more than anything, hearing that this podcast nudged one of you towards getting professional help or going to a support group. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Average Tits uh, about her depression. Like there's a huge party going on and I'm not invited. Sometimes it manifests in extreme boredom, boredom to the point where I do not care about myself and could just lie in the same position for hours. About her love addiction. If he doesn't think I'm pretty, I am shit. Even if he says he does, he's a liar about her OCD, constantly wondering if I did or said something weird, how I came off to other people, um, about her compulsive behaviors, going on Twitter or Facebook for hours, zoning out and looking up random people and comparing myself to them. Oh, she's pretty, has a great job, an amazing boyfriend. I want to die. Thank you for sharing that. This is a happy moment filled out by Jesse. She writes, when I come home from work, and the dog is there to greet me, I kneel on the floor just inside the door, and he stands on my knees. He gives me a few kisses, the only time I get them, and I kiss his forehead. We just stay there for a few minutes, him sniffing me over, me petting him, and then it's time to put away the groceries or make dinner. He's the best thing that's ever happened to me, and it's not a far reach to say that during my worst depressive episodes, he saved my life. I've told you many times I love to roll out of bed and just get down and kiss Ivy's snout and then go over to the other side of the bed and look at what Roman Emperor pose Herbert has struck in a gigantic pile of blankets and uh, just give him a little belly, little belly rubs. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself just your average apple slicing genius about her anxiety. She writes, constantly worrying that it, will, that it will keep me safe. Definitely. Maybe. I don't know. About her PTSD. You tore me down emotionally. Now I jab myself with a paper clip to keep from feeling rejected. 
uh, about living with abusers. Uh, she writes, my boss, my mom, and stepdad. If I live and breathe to please you, then I can keep you from humiliating me. About her low self-esteem. Does cover girl make a concealer that will hide the piece of shit I am on the inside? <laughs> Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. Snapshot from her life. I'm cutting an apple for my three-year-old daughter and worrying about how I won't be able to give her everything because of money. Feeling like a complete failure as a person. When I'm done cutting the apple, she excitedly says, Oh, wow, Mom, you are a genius. Apples are flipping awesome. I wish I saw myself the way my daughter sees me. If slicing an apple for a tiny three-year-old girl is genius, then God damn it, I'm a fucking genius. Look out, world. I can slice an apple. Awesome. Awesome. This is... This is an awfulsome moment uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself Starbuck. Starbuck. Yeah, Starbuck. And he writes, it's not a moment, but a life. I am employed in a mental health support. I am employed in mental health support as a peer worker. Um, My client's issues are a rainbow of dysfunction from mild to acute. It's tough work, but I go to work with a spring in my step because dealing with my two- and four-year-old sons is a goddamn nightmare in comparison. I'll take daily suicide attempts over an argument over which blanket to bring in the car any day. And then I would like to uh, to end on a happy moment that I uh, had in uh, uh, during my trip to, to Brooklyn. Uh, I was walking around uh, the ungentrified part of, uh, of Williamsburg with... Um, Rama, whose episode you will be hearing uh, some point in the near future, uh, uh, and she is of Syrian descent and was raised in Brazil, and her boyfriend, Haydn, uh, who is of uh, Colombian descent, and um, we were walking around, uh, actually, I was just with Rama, now that I think of it, and um, we were walking through her neighborhood, and we passed a bodega uh that had salsa music cranking. I really like salsa music. And uh, there was a group of guys sitting at a table playing dominoes, and they were laughing. And there's a hair salon right next door with a group of women who were just laughing and singing. And uh, it was just, it was just such a. Uh, a beautiful moment. And being with with, with Rama. Um, I, I just felt like I was in this cultural uh, pot of, of like I was a part of the world. Um, like I, A, I was just getting a really cool New York, authentic New York experience, but I also just was reminded of the diversity of, of humanity and how Beautiful, beautiful it feels to be a small part of that. Uh, well, there you have it. I hope you uh, you enjoyed that episode. I certainly did. As I said, we'll be back with new episodes in uh, August. We'll be doing best ofs until then. And uh, never forget, uh, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.